This is the What Now Podcast. I keep promises, and we need to trust that. We need to trust that he will heal all our wounds and dry all our tears if we do it in his non-negotiable terms. They are non-negotiable because they're the only way we can become what we're meant to become. If you change the rules, it would be out of a lack of love for us. So he's like, no, this is the way, and I'll help you on it. I'm not even leaving you alone. I've got the Savior. You've got the Savior with you. You have angels to bear you up. You may not see them, but they're there when you're trying. Trust me, he says, and we are so much better off when we do. This is the What Now podcast, where we discuss the culture and beliefs in the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints with honesty and faith in an effort to encourage, uplift, and inspire. I am Mary Alice Hatch, your host. Join me as I speak with Lily Anderson, LDS marriage and family counselor, where she talks honestly about the reality between liberation and savior theology and how parents can help their young and adult children trust God and his influence despite opposition. Today, I'll be speaking with marriage and family therapist, Lily Anderson. Welcome. Thank you. So before we begin, would you mind just sharing a little bit about yourself so listeners can get to know you better? Sure. Old enough that that's kind of a long story, so I'm going to try to keep this short. (laughs) (laughs) Some of the maybe more salient parts of uh, my story, that I'm a first-generation American. My mother is French and my father Mexican, now both deceased. Amazing people who came to this country with nothing. My dad got three college degrees in his second language. My mother got three college degrees in her third. And they came without resource, as I said. Uh, Neither of them had a secondary education even. So amazing people who ended up as full professors in sociology at BYU. But I grew up mostly in the Midwest, in Indiana. And then I thought that I would probably pursue that path of getting a doctorate in teaching at the university. It looked like a wonderful life. My parents shared so much at the dinner table and in the car and things like that. I really loved the way they thought and analyzed and blended their professions with the gospel of Jesus Christ. They were devoted to their testimonies, to the church, to the Savior. And that was such a great example of intellectual honesty, true intellectual honesty, when they really understood God's position as supreme. So anyway, that was a wonderful foundation. But then in high school, I was dating my husband, and I didn't think I'd marry him at the time, but he asked if I wanted a family, which I thought I'd have maybe two or three kids, and then what I wanted to do. And I said, get a PhD and work at a university level. And he said, how would you do handle that with the kids? And for the first time, it occurred to me that I wouldn't get a French grandmother standard issue, which is what I had growing up. So she lived with us. I never had a babysitter or anything. And I started to listen to the brethren talk about mothers, especially at a time when the Equal Rights Amendment was in the focus of the news and the church was having campaigns to try to help us understand that that was not a wise legal move for the Constitution. Anyway, I got a real testimony of full-time mothering, and that really changed the course of my life. I did marry my husband after his mission, and we had eight kids in 12 years. I never would have imagined that that would be what my life was like, and it was wonderful. Certainly the hardest job on the planet, if you'll forgive my saying that, brethren, but uh, it's such a growth-oriented opportunity. And I loved it. I learned to get revelation on how to be a parent and to help my children learn and become just so wonderful. And then I thought I would kind of go seamlessly from there to grandmotherhood, but I got a ba- what I call a baseball bat revelation. I was praying about something different or sort of related. And I got a very strong message that I needed to go back to school and get an MSW, which is a master's of social work. 
That's the degree my mother had at her master's level. My husband had that degree. So I was very familiar with it. I had kind of a spiritual tantrum that whole weekend because I didn't want to leave my home. I loved what I was doing. I was teaching early morning seminary by that time, and I loved that too, but I didn't want to go back to school. But God is smarter than we are. And my husband said, well, then don't go. And I said, then I'd have to turn in my temple recommend because it was such a clear answer, such a clear direction. So it was an enormous effort for my whole family, of course, but many miracles happened. And I got my master's, finished my licensure while we were still in Las Vegas. And then my husband got transferred to Utah just in time for me to get a smaller baseball bat tap on the head that directed me toward a PhD. Ended up doing my doctorate at BYU in marriage, family, and human development. And then continued to teach there as an adjunct professor for several years. And my children were on campus at the time, which was such a blessing because my big prayer had been, don't let this cost my children. And so God gave me so many opportunities to be there for my children in some unexpected ways. And those were terrific times. And my practice kind of came with me to from Las Vegas to Utah. A lot of people in Vegas know people in Utah. So I had clients right away and the practice got very busy. I was still teaching anyway. It got a little crazy when my youngest son went on a mission. I no longer had any kids on campus and I decided to go full-time with the practice, which I did and have uh, practiced since then. Get a lot of opportunities to speak. That's been a delight. Just recently retired and is very supportive of the podcasts I've been doing and (laughs) all these different adventures. So now have six of our eight children married and 37 grandchildren. Wow. Best return on an investment ever. (laughs) Seriously. My 401k should do so well, right? (laughs) Uh Uh-huh. Right. That is incredible. I love how your parents modeled for you the importance of education, that you follow the promptings to be the mother first and then the bat over the head to be the (laughs) educator and to jump in and not be afraid to do that later in life. I kind of go full bore on things. So when, I mean, I did embrace that motherhood season and I loved it. I know there are a lot of moms who struggle. And as a counselor, I've talked to many of them. And in my presentations, I've talked to many of them. I love those sweet moms. I'm so grateful for women. And I know that not every woman is able to be a full-time mom. It's not always an option that we can exercise. But if we are moms at home, God doesn't sacrifice his daughters for his other children. There's growth potential in that role, and he wants us to find it. He wants us to find our way through the tough times so that we can let him, what does he promise? He promises to consecrate our afflictions for our gain. He promises to always magnify us if we come to him. And that's what happened to me. I was magnified and hopefully did some good to my children too, (laughs) which was the goal. But I became better because I wanted to be better for them. And I don't want to go off too much on that topic, except to say that motherhood is sacred and it's precious and it's under attack and it almost gets negative recognition in our world. I shouldn't say almost. It gets negative recognition. You're just a mom. Incredibly insulting and frankly idiotic, that statement is. And we should never say it about ourselves that we're just a mom. That's just magnificent to be a mother. We hold this modeling clay in our hands. And yes, they're own people. And we can't say that we are fully responsible for how they turn out. But we have so much influence. What do they used to say this? The hand that rocks the cradle is the hand that rules the world. That's not always true. But there's a lot of it that can be true. Mothers matter. They matter. And they should find a way to be joyful 
in that extremely challenging job. <laughs> it's true. Sherry Dew's the one that said that the hand that rocks the cradle, that that is powerful. It is. That is powerful. It's yeah. always been true. God's when he wants to change the world, he sends a baby. And then a mother raises that child. And a father too. Fathers are also really essential, but let's all face it, mom's on the front lines every day. Mm-hmm. Oh yeah, for sure. I mean, my friends that work full-time said it was a break going to work. Of course. <laughs> the real job was being home with the kids. Of course. I think we all understand that. And it's not to take away from those people who need to work. Yeah, no, a hundred percent. And a lot of people, that is their journey. I've interviewed Astrid Tuminez and Jane Clayson Johnson and all these people who- Well, it became my journey too. And I was shocked, (laughs) but God had a plan and it included that. So he kept his promises to me about the children. Yeah. And he does know the timing of all things. And when you had that impression that you just could not avoid is a testament to the fact that he knows the timing and he will let us know when it's the right time. That's right. Always love. And when I was very young, I remember hearing that Ezra Taft Benson statement that if we turn our lives over to the Lord, he can make more out of it than we can. And that is the story of my life. He has made more out of me than I ever could have. That is the truth. No, it's interesting. You've been on a few podcasts. I heard you on the Follow Him podcast. I really liked what you had to say when you were on that podcast with Hank Smith and John, by the way, about the incredible sacred nature of honoring parents and that when we honor parents, we're more able to honor divinity. And when we were growing up, I'm 52 And when I was growing up, I don't remember our church culture challenging parental and church authority as much as we are now. Well, the world is turning under our feet, and it has descended so rapidly. In fact, in some respects, we're in a free fall in terms of losing traditional values, and that includes our religious beliefs and some of our just Judeo-Christian foundational understandings of the hierarchy with God at the top and us at the bottom. And that's not a diss toward us. We are his children. He loves us and he has placed in us the potential to become like him. So there's no disrespect there. It's just the reality that like Moses comes down from that amazing experience. This is Moses chapter one in the Pearl of Great Price where he says, wow, for this cause, I know that man is nothing, which thing I had never before supposed. It's one of those things that we should like just make this eternal note to self that God is the one who can make us into what we can become not the world, not the philosophies of men. It's God. It's his way that elevates us. And we have a world that increasingly rejects that, that says that anything that stands in a hierarchy above you is oppressive. That's kind of the conventional wisdom now. I shouldn't say kind of, that's it. That above anybody else is oppressive. Anybody who has more than anything else is oppressive. And that equality of outcome is Satan's plan. Satan's the one who said everybody's going to have exactly the same thing without any merit-based effort. What God says is you can be what you want to be, that we choose. That gift of agency is so important because it's the only thing that gives any kind of success meaning. If I actually work for something, things being worth what we pay for them, and it's the effort itself that makes the product dear to us, the product of ourselves becoming better because we made a sacrifice of our natural man of our selfish, worldly ways to become more godlike, more like Jesus Christ. I mean, we never lose in that bargain, right? We think we're making these big sacrifices, but God always compensates with blessings that are so far outweighing those initial sacrifices that we're like, why didn't I do that before? 
And yet that's so contrary to our world that really, really elevates the individual. You get to do it your way. Nobody can tell you what to do. You have to be true to yourself. Notice that every time they say true to yourself, they don't mean the child of God's self. So don't be deceived. People who say you get to be yourself or find yourself or become yourself, that's all natural man stuff. That is a really important distinction. It is. And we need to have the, the wisdom to see through those kinds of seductive and enticing kinds of ideas that make it sound like, well, yeah, that sounds right. That sounds right. I should express myself. <laughs> I need to look into myself to discover who I am. And God says, no, look upward. Don't look inward. Look upward. Look to me. Center on Christ. Keep your eyes single to Christ. He will help you become what you were created to become. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you have an incredible a perspective on liberation theology versus savior theology. Do you want to talk about that a little bit? You're already alluding to that right now. Yeah, it's really important. And we don't use these terms all that frequently in our church circles. And maybe we need to start really being conscious about what these things are and what they represent. So savior theology is what we basically would call the doctrine of Christ. It means that we are creations of God, his children. We chose to come to this world and to participate in the fall of Adam and Eve. I really believe that we all probably raised our arms to the square in the pre-earth life and deputized them to make that choice, to eat the fruit that would get them cast out of the garden for our sake, so that we could come also and participate in that fallen state, which then gives us the chance to exercise agency, so that our choices could be meaningful, that our progress could be meaningful, not dictated by somebody else, but by our own choice. And so, what happens, and of course we learn this in the temple, but even in the gospel of Jesus Christ, we learn this before going to the temple, that God through covenant tells us how to come back to him in a glorified state so that we can again progress, fulfill the measure of our creation, learn to unite and integrate the spirit with the flesh. That was the second estate. We couldn't progress any further as spirits, but here we could because we could bring those two things together. Remember Christ says, the spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. But that's not true for God and Christ. They have fully integrated spirit and flesh. They don't have a devil on one shoulder and an angel on the other playing a tug of war all the time. They are fully integrated to the good. And that's what we have an opportunity to become in this life is to take that great gift of the body and integrate it with our spirit so that it's no longer weak, but it becomes anti-fragile. It becomes strong and whole and complete and able to be sanctified by the power of the Holy Ghost. That's wonderful doctrine of Christ, that we come to earth, participate in the fall, and then through covenant, show faith, then get baptized, have the gift of the Holy Ghost that we have to qualify for through our obedience, and then we can be lifted to his level. That's the doctrine of Christ, right? Second Nephi 31, and all through the last chapters of Second Nephi. Liberation theology is honestly an antichrist doctrine. It doesn't recognize the fall at all. It says we are perfect the way we are, that we get to decide what we are and what we want to be, and nobody has to change. Change is too oppressive. To ask me to change means that I'm doing something wrong in the first place. So there's no acknowledgement of the fallen state or of even the natural man that is an enemy to God, as King Benjamin so clearly stated, because it has all those desires, appetites, and passions that are selfish and that are impulsive and just want to do what's easy instead of what is our better self, that ability to integrate spirit and flesh for a higher good that can help us become that more Christ-like person. Anyway, 
liberation theology is all about, like if anybody's asking you to do anything, they're the oppressor. Don't listen. You need to fight back. You need to liberate yourself from that. We need revolutions and so on to get rid of people who pretend that they know a better way. Completely anti-Christ. There's no need for a savior in liberation theology because nobody needs to be saved. Yeah. Everybody's fine just the way you are in the natural man state. Yeah, that's a dangerous space too, and allowing kids to think they're just fine the way they are and buy into their perception of themselves because they might not see their true potential and what they can become. That's right. And the world's saying, you don't even have to explore that. You're just fine. Don't let anybody tell you any different. And you think, where's the progress? Right. We're going to stay the way we began. That's the tragedy. If we finish life the way we began life, <laughs> what were we here for? And I remember hearing somebody say this years ago, but when you finish changing, you're finished. Life is about change. The atonement of Jesus Christ is all about change. Yeah. Continually becoming a better version of ourselves. And what an amazing opportunity God gives us to do that. That is 100% true. And I am thinking of this quote that you had in your podcast you had sent me that is incredible. And you're welcome to reference that. That's a great podcast that people should listen to. But what you said, if we want to fulfill the potential that is ours and to receive the gifts that God has given us, we must do it in his way, not our version of his way. Exactly. I feel like that is the gospel of Jesus Christ in its wonder and magnificence, that it gives us this chance to do it in the way that is ordained. When I started doing counseling, and thank you for referencing my podcast, which is uh, Choosing Glory, and I think you're talking about the Amos and Obadiah yes. episode that I talked about, liberation theology and savior theology, and so thanks. But what I want to say is that we're given this opportunity to become this best version of ourselves, and the world pulls back on that and tells us that nobody has the right to ask, right? So we've talked about that a little bit, but I remember this wonderful quote by Jeff Holland. <laughs> Maybe you remember it too, in a general conference speech where he said that this is how the world is now. They want a God who not only doesn't rock the boat, he doesn't even row it. Brilliant way to put it. And he kind of says, talk about creating God in man's image. We're trying to change the nature of God, that he doesn't see anything in us, but what we already are. How tragic is that? Is that what we see in our children? When we look at our children, we just see them as they are little kids who really don't have a lot of coordination or ability or learning yet. And we're just kind of like, oh, wouldn't it be wonderful if they stayed like that forever? No, we want them to grow. We want them to learn. We want them to develop. That's how God sees us. He knows that we can be like him. So he's like, here's the path. Oh, and when I started to do counseling, it was really interesting to me because I had been, like I said, a full-time mother for about 20 years. And then I started thinking, I remembered this line from the first line of Tolstoy's Anna Karenina which is a very depressing book. Maybe some of you've read it. I had to read it in high school for my English class. And back then we didn't have the internet, so I couldn't just go and Google it. So I had to actually go to a bookstore or a library, I don't remember which, to see if I was remembering this line correctly. And I was. First line of Anna Karenis says, all happy families are alike. Every unhappy family is unhappy in its own way. And that's what I was seeing. The validation of the fact that there is basically one Lord, one faith, one baptism. There is one way to be happy. And I mean happy not in the pleasure-seeking sense of the world, where it's all about this momentary buzz. I'm talking about fulfillment and meaning and purpose that lasts, that doesn't require another hit of the substance in order to get the buzz, but that actually comes from inside and really makes life meaningful and wonderful. And it really is this one path that God knows. 
I mean, this is not a new idea of his. He has run this plan countless times in countless universes. It doesn't need tweaking. <laughs> this is God is like, I am the way. <laughs> well, yeah, Savior theology is sustainable. <laughs> yeah, it is. That's a nice way to put it. That's the first thing that came to my head when you're talking about all this. Savior theology is sustainable. All these other things are not sustainable. That's right. These other things are flashes in the pan. And God is like, no, I've got the answer. You don't have to reinvent the wheel. Totally. Yeah. Trust me. I've been doing this for thousands of years. <laughs> not my first rodeo. <laughs> <laughs> it's true. Cause like the world preaches liberation theology. I mean, how can we help our family see the value and savior theology? So many parents are so scared to rock the boat and offend their kids or like distance themselves from their kids. How can we do that in a really loving way, but still preach the truth? And that's, you know, kind of the rubber hits the road. And it's such an important part of this. Obviously, it's much better if we start young. And I know that many parents listening are not having babies anymore, or maybe their kids are teenagers already or whatever. But for those who have young children, it is so important to start young. I think that a lot of it comes down to not being ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ, to trust in the power of the word. The word has power. Remember that um, Alma talks about that, that he decided to try the virtue of the word instead of just these constant battles and conflicts, because the gospel of Jesus Christ really does have power. So we need to trust that. I mean, I'm always sad when I hear about these, and I do constantly hear about young men's and young women's programs that just entertain the kids. I'm like, do we not trust the virtue of the word? Like they can get entertainment anywhere. But not only that, the world won't stop in their effort to titillate and excite and stimulate our children. So they have no limits and no boundaries. We're never going to win that battle because we will stop with our standards at least. But why are we trying to entertain them? Same thing with parents. Why are we trying to just have, have them have a fun childhood rather than a meaningful one where we talk about the principles of the gospel of Jesus Christ, which have power to save us because they bring us to Christ and Christ is the one who has the power to save us. But the gospel is his message. And so of course, we should bear our testimonies to our children regularly and not in a formal way necessarily, although that's okay too, but just in the informality of the, you know, what is it, Deuteronomy, I always forget which chapter, like four, I think, where it says, you should talk of these things to your children when thou risest up and when thou liest down and when thou walkest by the way. And it should be a part of our conversation, you know, the power of God in our lives, you know, the blessings that we feel from him, the prayers that we have seen answered and the ones that we have seen delayed or answered in different ways and recognizing how God works with us because our vision is so limited and his is unlimited. So testifying of God to our children as we walk through our times, when they come with questions, you know, tying it back to gospel principles. What does God think about this? Let's think about how God teaches us this in the scriptures or what the words of the prophets have been to help us understand these things. You know, just kind of making that a part of our everyday stuff. Now, if we haven't done that and we start to do it, it seems weird but that's just because we're coming out of our comfort zone. And by definition, it's going to be a little uncomfortable. That doesn't mean it's wrong. Sometimes people rush back to their comfort zone because it feels a little weird, but then there's no growth. So we have to tolerate a little bit of the discomfort of change if we're going to be successful at growing and changing. And so it may seem awkward with our kids and our kids might push back and say like, why are you talking about this all the time? <laughs> it's like, because I care, because I love you and I want you to have my best stuff, the best stuff that I know on the planet. And it's the gospel. So tolerate me a little bit, put up with me a little bit. I also think that we worry so much about building these strong relationships with our children 
And that's great because it is important to have a positive relationship with our children. That's a huge part of parenting is for them to feel loved and safe and supported by us. However, we then never even like kind of utilize that relationship to, to kind of pull them toward the gospel. I mean, how do I want to say this? When my children were, you know, as they got a little older, sometimes they'd want to push back against a rule or something. And my response would be like, hang on, let's review. Whose side am I on? And they knew I was on their side because we did have these positive relationships. We did lots of fun things as a family and meaningful things. And they knew I'd throw myself in front of a train for any one of them. So they would have to say like, I know you're on my side. And I'd say, that's right. I could sit back and let you turn into a jerk, but not on my watch. <laughs> it's not going to happen because I love you. So it's kind of using that relationship, pulling on that relationship, say like, you know I love you, and that's why I'm telling you this. That's why I'm witnessing to you about the importance of the gospel, about the importance of Jesus Christ and becoming like him, the importance of feeling God's love day to day, of getting to know him, of, of having that connection with him through prayer and through reading scriptures. Like, yeah, that's why I'm saying this, because I love you, and not being afraid that, wow, if I say those things, then they won't think I love them anymore, or they'll think that I'm being too demanding. By the way, we all have understandable concerns about our children having positive self-worth, but they don't have positive self-worth if they're just coddled. That's actually really destructive of self-worth. What helps children have self-worth is when they do hard things, when they harness the natural man, when they learn more patience, when they learn more respect, when they learn to do chores that are not immediately rewarding. It's those things that give it person worth. And if we don't make any demands of our children, we're actually cutting them off at the knees when it comes to that sense of self. And then they're vulnerable to every philosophy that comes out there. And especially, you know, if they don't have that foundation of good sense of self, I mean, here come the schools or the media or social media, whatever, with all these messages that are contrary to happiness, and they drop like flies. That is such an important point you just made. Because I think in this generation, we're feeling like the less stress we have on these kids, the more resilient they'll be, the more we're protecting them. But it's the opposite. I mean, you think of anyone who's become a success by the world's standards, there was a major struggle and there was value in the struggle and it made them the person they were. Always. That's how we're created. We're created. Anti-fragile is a phrase that maybe you hear every once in a while. I became acquainted with it several years ago and I love it because it talks about how some things are created fragile, like China, you drop them, they, it breaks. Some things are more resilient, like plastic. If you drop it, it probably won't break. But some things are actually created anti-fragile, meaning that they require stress to optimize their potential. And the three examples given typically are muscle, which we all understand, use it or lose it. Muscle will atrophy if it's not used. It becomes weaker, not stronger. Bone, same thing, especially as we get older, you know, they talk about do those weight-bearing exercises, walk, you know, do resistance training or jog or whatever, so that you can put stress on the bone because that's what keeps it from becoming fragile and easily damaged. And the third example after muscle and bone is children, except we should really augment that to, you know, say human beings, children of God, we are created anti-fragile. We require opposition which as we know from scripture very clearly is a part of the plan so we can optimize. And then you're right. We wrap these kids in bubble wrap and we think they're going to optimize. And it's the opposite. They atrophy. They become more fragile. They become less able to deal with the world instead of, and now I'm not suggesting that we throw them under the bus or throw them to the wolves and say like, okay, you know, this is going to be good for you. 
Obviously, there are things that parents do to protect their children, which are wise stewardship issues. Nevertheless, we overdo it. We protect them from everything. We protect them from any demand. And we rob them of self-worth. We rob them of strength. We rob them of optimization. They can never become what they're meant to be. And we see this everywhere. Our kids are fragile, easily offended, easily depressed or anxious. These are situations our society has created. And I know that those things are real and I'm not trying to dismiss them. I'm a counselor. I work with people who have those struggles all the time, but I approach it this very way. And I tell them, you weren't meant to be fragile. You were meant to be anti-fragile. So let's find our way there. Let's get the growth. Let's get the ballast that God wants to give you in your life so that you're not so easily knocked down. This is even better than resilience. Resilience is you get knocked down, you get back up, which is good. Anti-fragility is that it's really hard to knock me down. I like that. Anti-fragile. I've never heard that before. Pretty powerful. I found it in a book that I really like and recommend to all parents and others called The Coddling of the American Mind by Jonathan Haidt and Greg Lukianoff. Really a good book, really a good book for parents and everyone about how we have created this fragility. And they're actually quoting another book that is called Anti-Fragile by Nassim Taleb, which I also kind of read, sort of skimmed through, but I actually like The Coddling of the American Mind a little bit more. I thought it it went into into some really good directions, but they certainly acknowledged the contribution of Taleb. But yes, that's a great work. And there's lots of stuff, but it really coincides with the gospel of Jesus Christ, because like we said, there's opposition in all things. Why? Because God is trying to hedge up our way? No, because he knows what we can be. He sees with complete clarity who we are created to be, what our potential is. And I'll be darned, he said, I'll be darned if I'm not going to give them a chance. Why would I limit their potential? And it's really, we could see life as a whole big spiritual weight room. We know how weight rooms work, right? You have to to lift the weight to build the muscle. You don't build the muscle if you just sit there looking at the weight or if you retreat from it. You've got to stress that muscle so that it can become more of what it's intended to be. So yes, if we protect our children from every every little negative thing or like I said, bubble wrap them, we're really working against them. That's a really important point to make. Because I think our tendency is protection, right? And there is a place for that, right? If they're in physical danger or there are certain circumstances where as parents we do stuff. The in. media out there, we need to protect our homes from some pornographic stuff and whatever. Yeah, there are definitely areas where parents are called on and commanded to have stewardship over your children and do our best to protect them. Absolutely. Sorry, I jumped right in, but that's so important. No, it is. You're totally right. And I feel like As parents, too, we can help our kids see that they can get through it. Like, you've got this. This is hard. What are you going to do about it? Instead of trying to solve their problems. That's right. The power is in you. Let's figure this out. Here are the principles that God gives us. Let's apply them. Let's figure out which ones, you know, really apply to the situation and use them. Let's trust him. Let's trust that his way not only gets us through the tough times, but then again, magnifies our potential and helps us become things we never knew we could become. It helps us become capable and competent in areas where we're like, wow. So I have to tell a little story about this. I was thinking about this the other day. Something reminded me. I never babysat when I was a a young person. I I was intimidated by children because I thought, how do you get them to do what what you want? And I had this French grandmother, like I said, and I only had one sister who was five years younger. So I really never had any real responsibility for a child. And then I got married and I wanted to be a mom. I knew that that was important, but I really was in, kind of out of my depth. So I did a lot of praying in those days. <laughs> At any rate, we had a child, a honeymoon baby right off the bat. And then um, 
Chris was called shortly after that to be in a bishopric. And we were in one of those close to BYU, newlywed and nearly dead wards. So the bishop was retired. And then here's my 23-year-old husband in the bishopric with another counselor who was older and had older kids. Anyway, we had this kind of a special experience about that call. It surprised us. He was already serving as eldest foreign president. So we thought he was busy enough. But anyway, so I was writing about it in a journal. And I'm not a great journal keeper, but I occasionally have kept journals. And I'm really grateful for this one because I... I'm grateful for all the ones I've kept, so I do work on it. But anyway, this one, I recorded something about how the call came because it was special. And then and then I put my own comments and I said, I know Chris is going to do a great job. He has these gifts of administration and so on, and I know he'll serve the award well. But I'm not really confident of my own ability to take care of Adam alone during sacrament meeting. <laughs> now, let me just say, this child was like a mild-tempered child. He was not colicky. He was not, you know, really particularly fussy. It was very, very easy child. And we lived in the same ward with my in-laws who sat on the same pew with me. So it was three adults with one mild-tempered child. And here in my own handwriting, I'm writing down, (laughs) I'm concerned about my ability to handle this one child. And I found that journal. Oh, I don't remember. It must've been 10 years later or something, maybe not quite 10 years. When you had eight kids? (laughs) Well, not yet. We had six. (laughs) We were in Chicago Chris had to travel. So I sometimes went to church alone with my six children who were all eight and under. And I never thought twice of it. Not twice did I think worry about that. I had grown. If a friend had come to me and said, do you remember when you were worried about taking care of Adam? I don't think I would have believed her. I think I would have said, like, you must be thinking of somebody else. Because I had changed so profoundly that what had seemed intimidating with one child was no problem with six or later with eight. And I was like dumbfounded. I'm like, wow, I'm more competent and capable than I ever would have imagined. That's how it happened. It's against resistance. And then we spend our lives avoiding challenges or trying to take the easy route. We're robbing ourselves and we're robbing our children. And it reconditions us too. Like, I mean, think how like you're all worried about, you've got the in-laws helping the mild-mannered child with one, and then you're not even noticing with eight. We're not all (laughs) mild-mannered. That shows progress. Yeah, it does. And it happens in those little moments if we don't rob ourselves and if we don't rob our children. We want to help people deal with challenges, not avoid them. And again, there's that sweet spot. We're not saying you throw them to the wolves. But in our society, the default right now is permissiveness and overprotection. It's a great quote by Elder Maxwell that I I should have memorized. It's pretty close, if not exact. But it's something like this where he said that, I have no hesitancy, brothers and sisters, in stating that unless checked, permissiveness at the end of its journey will cause humanity to stare in mute disbelief at its awful consequences. I remember when he said that in conference, I think it was like 1998, and in a speech called, I think, Teach the Children, I could be wrong, but it's not hard to find if you Google some of those phrases. And it was so prophetic. It was so incredibly prophetic. He saw our day and what is happening where kids are fragile and they're not holding to their testimonies. Anything can offend them. They're very influenced by liberation theology. Nobody has the right to interfere with your truth or your expression of self. And frankly, let's be blunt. I don't mean to offend anybody ever, but I love the truth. And the truth is that God has told us who we are. This wonderful proclamation on the family that tells us clearly that we are sons and daughters of God, but our children become so fragile that any 
worldly philosophy can come through, even the challenge to who they are as men and women or male and female. And they're not prepared to deal with those things because if they don't have a good sense of self-worth, if they don't have a connection with God, if they haven't done hard things, then they are fragile and they're not super happy or fulfilled because that can only come through dealing with opposition in positive ways. And so they think, well, maybe here is happiness then. Maybe I'm not a boy. Maybe I'm not a girl. I mean, they're so vulnerable to every, every little, you know, carnival guy who's saying, here is happiness. Here's the elixir. Here's happiness over here. No, here's, here's real. They just drop like flies at all those different options that they think, well, okay, maybe that will make me feel good about myself. It's definitely the way of the world right now. And it is major. I mean, it's everywhere. It's in every communication platform. It's in every <laughs> in everything. And it's all about here is happiness. It's all about here is fulfillment. Here is meaning. And yet we have the gospel of Jesus Christ that has all the answers, all of them. And it's not that God knows only some of his children, but others need something else. And I've heard some people, I've heard some Latter-day Saint counselors talk like that. Like, well, the gospel's not for everyone. Some people need to be happier outside the church. I'm like, what? Like God has a plan that only works for some of his children, but he didn't care about the rest? I mean, that's ridiculous. I don't understand that philosophy. I was like, no, the gospel is the answer for everyone. Everybody is happier when we follow this path, when we come to Jesus Christ. God and Christ love us at levels we can only imagine, even when we're parents and we love our own children at amazing levels. They love us so much. They have given us everything we need. It is for everyone. There is no one who is left out of God's plan. That is beautiful. And I do believe that. I just feel like it really came full circle for me when I had my children and I realized how much I love them. I deeply love them and have a beautiful relationship with both of them. And I just thought how much God loves me because I love them so much. It gives us that window into it his does. And it's precious. It's precious. And then his is even more perfect than our love. We should be in awe and wonder and we should trust it. I think trust is pivotal. There are all these voices around and shakes loose our trust in God, or maybe it doesn't allow it to develop as, as strongly as it could. But if we focus on that, if we really listen to what he says and we believe him, he tells us that his love for us is unending. He tells us that he has the way to heal all our wounds and to magnify all our potential. He makes amazing promises to us. Amazing promises. I know I was in a tough part of my life once, and here's the ironic part. I remember how concerned I was. This was probably over 20 years ago now, but I don't remember what the trial was. <laughs> so that hopefully sets up the idea that the answer was so powerful that I had forgotten the trial. But I was taking a walk and I was kind of praying about it. And it wasn't something like I hadn't made my own trouble in this case. You know, it was just things that were happening that had combined to create some pretty serious demands and stresses and troubles. And, and I had this verse of scripture come into my mind. And I'm just going to make a plug right here. Memorize all the scripture that you can. If you like a verse, memorize it. And the same thing with hymns, because there is such great doctrinal power in the hymns and in scripture that I'm so grateful for everything I ever memorized that came from scripture or the hymns, because God has often used those to answer my prayers or to, to comfort me and to teach me. So anyway, there's my pitch for memorization. 
And now we don't even really ask the kids to memorize the articles of faith. I think that's tragic, but anyway, we try to try to memorize. So here I was, and I had this verse that came into my mind because I had memorized it once. And I couldn't remember the verse, but I knew it was in the DNC. And I went home and looked it up at section 90, verse 24, which is a great verse, by the way. But what the words were that came to my mind was, search diligently, pray always, and be believing. And all things shall work together for thy good. If you walk uprightly and remember the covenant, you know, etc. Anyway, that first part came to my mind. And I, my first response was sort of incredulity. <laughs> I was kind of skeptical. I'm like, all things, like even this, I'm struggling with this trial right now that's really getting me down. And you're telling me it can turn for my good? I'm hoping to survive it. And you're telling me it can be for my good? Like, wow, that was kind of a stretch for me in that initial moment. I had just a nanosecond to have that feeling of skepticism and doubt. And then there was an immediate following thought that came into my mind, which was this. Either it's the truth or God's a liar. Choose one. Wow. <laughs> I was like duly chastened. Yeah. <laughs> like, oh, <laughs> that would be true. I know he's a God of truth. I know he's not a liar. And I made that decision a long time ago. And here I was, and God was just saying like, come on, honey, put up or shut up. (laughs) Like, am I a truth teller or am I a liar? If I am a truth teller, then believe what I'm saying. I do search. I do pray. I do walk uprightly. He doesn't say we have to be perfect or finished. (laughs) All of us are still in the trenches here. So we have our imperfections. We have our weaknesses. But if we're trying, if we're trying to come forward, That's all he's asking for is diligence, not perfection, diligence. So search, pray, walk uprightly, remember your covenant. I was trying to do all of those things. The part I was skipping was the belief, the trust. So I was chastened. I was like, you're right. I need to use my faith and believe God's promises. There's a beautiful little verse in section 58, right after the part about being anxiously engaged. You kind of turn the page and it's kind of at the top of the next page. Shortly after that, it says, Who am I, saith the Lord, who have promised and have not fulfilled? I love those attitude scriptures. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Like, who do you think you're talking to here? Yeah, listen, lady. Promises and doesn't keep them? Think again. I keep promises. And we need to trust that. We need to trust that he will heal all our wounds and dry all our tears if we do it in his non-negotiable terms. They are non-negotiable because they're the only way we can become what we're meant to become. If he changed the rules, it would be out of a lack of love for us. So he's like, no, this is the way. And I'll help you on it. I'm not even leaving you alone. I've got the Savior. You've got the Savior with you. You have angels to bear you up. You may not see them, but they're there when you're trying. Trust me, he says. And we are so much better off when we do. (laughs) And then why wouldn't we want our children to know that? Why wouldn't we say, like, give it a try? God says that. Prove me now here with, trust me, not in a skeptical, challenging way, like, hey, if you don't send me a sign I won't believe, but in a in a humble, like, I want to believe, like in the New Testament, Lord, I believe, help thou mine unbelief. Help me grow in this area. And he will. We keep coming. We find him. I love that. And I'd like to end on that note because I feel like that's powerful. Trust. Trust in the Lord. Trust in his plan. Trust that he loves you. Trust that he's going to make it all work out if we can have the faith and courage to follow him. I love it and we take the steps. He does want us to move our feet. We pedal, he steers. That's right. It takes action. Beautiful. Thank you so much for your time today. I loved our discussion. It was faith-filled. It was direct. It was beautiful and empowering. Thank you. You're very welcome. Thanks for the opportunity. It's been great to be here. 
Thank you for listening to the What Now podcast. If you've liked Lily's message today, you can tune into her podcast called Choosing Glory. You can find it wherever you listen to podcasts. I also invite you to share this episode with family, friends, and anyone you think it might help. Just click on that share button wherever you listen to podcasts. If you're on Instagram, follow us at Podcast What Now for inspirational messages and highlights from our past and present podcasts. We never say goodbye, we say what now. This has been a What Now podcast production.